All right. Well, I'm glad to again to be with you on Sunday night. I feel like it's kind of been a while. So uh, it's good to be with you. I love Sunday nights. Tonight I want to talk about the infinite and personal God. The infinite and personal God. Um, have you ever wondered why sharing the gospel is so hard in our culture today? Have you ever, um, have you ever maybe felt a twinge of embarrassment while you were pr- praying in public? Maybe, maybe let's say you're at a mall or something in a, a food court and you're praying over your meal and you feel a little embarrassed. Um, or maybe you. You've been in a, I don't know, a coffee shop or something, and you hear, you know, some people talking about religion or something, and you, you feel like that's a little out of place. Well, there's a reason you feel that way, and it's called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a philosophical movement in the 16 and 1700s, um, and because of it, our culture in the West, and by the way, this is we're talking. I'm talking about the West, so America, America and uh, Western Europe, because we think differently than most of the rest of the world. That's important to keep in mind. But um, because of that, our culture, present day American West and, and European West, is a, really it's a historical anomaly. That is that. In almost in all of human history, in almost all places all over the world, religion was an important part of public and private life. So if you go back and look at other cultures and other times and other places, the kings would invoke God. In the public square, they would talk about God. They would talk about religion. They, it, it, there was no... Uh, there was no separation, as it were. It was just, uh, it was just, uh, the religion was a, was a public um, uh, event. It was a public phenomena. If you went to India right now and you started talking to someone about religion, they would, they would think it's a normal conversation. If you walked up into Harvey's right now and you, you know, started talking about religion, they'd kind of like back away from you a little slowly. <laughs> It's because of our worldview, all right? But we have to remember that our Western culture over the past 200 years or so is really the, uh, is, is unusual. Um, you may have heard of the philosopher Immanuel Kant and others. They proposed this view of the world that, div- that divided the world into the realms of feeling and fact, okay? So... This was over 200 years ago, but think about it. They, they proposed that there are certain things that are private and subjective that you should keep to yourself. And that there are things that are public that are allowed in the public square that we can talk about. In other words, they shape the way we think today. So that there is a realm of feelings or values that are personal. Right and wrong, love, religion, art, beauty, spiritual beliefs. These things, they can't, in this view, which we have inherited, these things can't be known for sure. 
they say. And to come down authoritatively and say, I know the truth in this area, well, that's to be arrogant. It's to be bigoted. It's to be intolerant. This is a, so this, this private realm, you can, you can keep it, but you must keep it to yourself. Conversely, there's another realm of facts, science, mathematical formulas, physical world, textbook, etc. These are the only types of materials admissible in public discourse because they are verifiable things. You didn't know there was a reason why you think the way you did, did you? We've inherited a worldview. But what has this done? It has created a divided world in which the, think about it, it has created a world in which the things that are actually the most important, it says, are the things you cannot know. What's right and wrong? That is literally maybe one of the most important questions you can answer. And many people say, well, you can't know. What is beauty? What is sacred? Is human life sacred? How do you know that? How can you know that? What does it even mean to be sacred? If we're just cosmic accidents of time, matter, and chance. Is such thing as sacredness, as beauty, as love, as meaning, as morality, are those things even real? And so... What happened is that over time, things that, used to, that you, people used to be so sure about have become nothing more than opinions that you have to keep to yourself. We are products of a relatively recent philosophical movement, and that of just one part of the world. C.S. Lewis uh, was a famed atheist uh, who uh, became converted, but this is, this is what he wrote one time describing this worldview, the way we think in the West. He said this, he said, nearly all that I loved and I believed, excuse me, nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grin, grim and meaningless. But something helped change C.S. Lewis's mind about that, and that was his Part of it, at least, was his friendship with a man named J.R.R. Tolkien, who, if you know, wrote The Lord of the Rings. And he told C.S. Lewis one time that Christianity was a true myth. It was a true myth. And this idea helped C.S. Lewis fit his world back together because he was saying that all the things that Lewis loved, a sense that meaning is true, that there is wonder in the world, that there are things that we should be in awe of, that there is such a thing as right and wrong, that there is such a thing as absolutes, that there is such a thing, that there is a story that is being written that goes beyond our lives, that gives meaning to our lives that we couldn't possibly have in and of ourselves. And, but the only reason that's true is because Christianity is true. That is that Christianity is a true myth. It's a myth but it's a, it's, it's a myth in the sense that it's a fantastic story, but it's a true myth in the sense that it's real. God has intersected the world in a man named Jesus Christ. And so it means that the things that we deep down know are real and true are really real and true because God has written them on our hearts. 
You see, this Enlightenment worldview gave us an overconfidence in human ability. It was accompanied, really preceded somewhat by scientific discoveries. And what that did is it kind of made, made us prideful. It kind of made us think that human reason can figure anything and everything out. And it, along with it came this interesting sense of skepticism, David Hume and others, where basically it, they kind of put forth this worldview is that if I can't see it, if I can't observe it, if I can't touch it, if I can't sense it, it must not be real. But again, this is, this is a historical anomaly because... From, from ancient days, almost all history and all cultures, all, all human history, has, there has been this, what what's Latin calls it the sensus uh, divinatum or something like that. It means the, the divine sense. I don't know Latin. But it means the divine sense. That is, that we all have an innate sense of the divine. And in fact, the Bible says this is true. In Romans chapter 1, it says, Although they knew God, they did not give thanks to Him and, or honor Him as God, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is, everybody has an innate sense of the divine that they cannot escape, but because we want to live in our sin, because we don't want someone else to be Lord over us, but we want to, to rule our own lives, we will suppress our knowledge of God so that to claim supposed freedom. The Bible says when we do that, we actually become slaves of our own desire. And part of this worldview, too, as I mentioned, um, interestingly, the scientific advancement that came at this time, which was pushing people away from God, interestingly, it, the scientific advancement only came because of the belief of because of the widespread belief in the West of Christianity and the Christian influence that happened in the West. Because you got to understand, Christianity is rather unique of most of the religions. It says that God created the heavens and the earth as distinct and separate from Himself. So that actually, rightly understood, opens the door to scientific inquiry. Contrary to what some people believe, it doesn't hinder it. It doesn't, it doesn't keep scientists from scientific inquiry. In fact, it, it instigates it because we understand because we believe in a, cre a creator who is a God of order that we expect, therefore, his created world, which is distinct from himself, to have an incredible deal of order, which it does. And, uh, and so... Unlike, say, a, a pantheist, for example, who would say that God is everything, that everything is God, well, that will really squelch inquiry because, because if, some, if the world is God, then of course then, that, that God, uh, then you don't, you don't want explain, you don't, you might not want explanations for things because the world is God, but Christianity is different. The world is distinct from God, but God still made it. He designed it. And so, the question that you're now asking is, what in the world does all this have to do with prayer? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. It has, a, it has to do with prayer because it explains to us why praying is so hard for us. As modern Americans, we swim in a sea of skepticism. 
there's this inner pool that we've that we've imbibed from our from our youth that we feel every day, and that is I have to keep my beliefs to myself. And that and that God, if he's there, he doesn't seem to care a whole lot. Skepticism that we've been swimming in our whole lives. That or that the most important things that we that in our life, God, religion, morality, meaning, destiny, I'm not a hundred percent sure if I can even know those things for sure. And this makes prayer hard. It erodes our confidence in our in our perception of spiritual realities. And it really what it does is it it teaches us to live two different lives, a, pub, a private life and a public life. It divides us. But Christ demands and brings us unity in heart and spirit and soul. And so, before the Enlightenment turned many Westerners atheists, which you should know, by the way, that atheism is still a strong Minor, I mean, it's a small minority. Uh, most people still believe in God. And in fact, interestingly, in postmodernism, there's actually a, a turn back to spirituality. Lots of people, spirituality is actually pretty popular today, just not Christian spirituality. But before the Enlightenment turned many Westerners atheists, it turned people deists. That is, lots of people in the Enlightenment and the famous philosophers of that time, including John Locke, Many people, Thomas Jefferson is a good example. He was a deist. He did not believe in the Christian God. The Jefferson Bible, Jefferson took scissors to his Bible and cut out every miracle in the entire Bible. Okay? He was a deist. He believed that God existed, but if he did exist, that God, that God was basically like a, clock, a divine clockmaker. He created the world, he wound it up, and then he stepped away. You see, and so in the West, because of that, the way we think, we tend, to, we tend to have no problem accepting God as infinite, but we struggle more with accepting God as personal. That is, we can have a big view of God that he created everything and that he, that he somehow controls everything, but at the same time, we have this, the personal sense, the sense that he could truly intervene in my life in a powerful way. That just feels a little foreign to us, a little strange. But, of course, as I said, this is actually different from probably most people in the world. If you go to other people in the world, they have no problem understanding a a personal God. You go to Africa in some places, they'll have God of the trees, God of the swamp, God of the wind. They have no problem with personal gods that deeply affect their everyday life, but these gods have very limited sphere of influence. They're small. And so I think because of sin, we tend to one extreme or another. We either tend to have a big God who's distant or a small God who's close. But Christianity actually gives a different picture. It gives a God who is both personal and infinite. A God who is both imminent, near to us, and transcendent, far greater than we could imagine. Listen to this uh, Second Chronicles chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. 
Solomon says, Will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. Listening to the cry and the prayer your servant prays before you. What's Solomon crying for? He's crying for an infinite and a personal God. A God who is both big and who is close. What about Isaiah 57, 15? Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I inhabit eternity. I dwell in a high and holy place. And with him who is contrite of spirit and lowly of heart. What does this mean? This means that Christians can and should pray like nobody else. Because we have a God who is not just the God of the wind, not just the God of the trees. He is the Lord of all. And he has come near to us. And he hears us when we pray. So this begs the question, how personal is he? Just how personal is he? How much does he care? Should I pray if I'm sick? Should I pray if I have cancer? Should I pray if I have a cold? Should I pray for my three-year-old when he takes a little tumble but is obviously not hurt at all, but he wants to pray about it? How much does God care? If an ambulance goes by, is it right for me to pray for them not to be going to my house? Because if I pray for that, am I not essentially praying they're going to someone else's house? I think Paul Miller is right in his book when he says that sometimes we can over-spiritualize prayer. That is, because of our Western worldview, we tend to kind of, if we're believers, we tend to kind of relent to this infinite God. And sometimes what we can do is we can lose our personhood in the midst of that. That is, in in our attempts to be wholly surrendered to God's will... We don't actually express the desires of our heart to God. And I think this point, and I, I kind of wrestled with it, I was reading it, but I think, I think he's right, and I think this point is illustrated in Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Remember Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane? Has that prayer ever bothered you before? It's bothered me. It really has. Because think about Jesus. Who is Jesus? He (laughs) is the most spiritual man who ever walked the earth. He is the man who was most sure of his mission. He was the man who was most surrendered to the will of God in his life. Where he never questioned for a second who he was and what he came to do in this world. And then we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus prays, if this cup can pass from me, 
Has that never shocked you? If this cup can pass from me, let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What is this? It shows that Jesus is both fully divine, but he's also fully human. And if you're like me, sometimes we struggle with praying certain prayers because we think, man, is this a selfish prayer? Was Jesus being selfish when he prayed, God, let this cup pass for me? I can't say that he was. And so I, and so I think what this does is it gives us a model that there is a sense in which it is right for us to be human before God. Because Jesus was. He was human and said, God, I don't want to go to the cross. But there is something that I want more than I do not want to go to the cross. And that is, I want more that your will be done. In other words, I'm human, but even in my weakness, I want your will more than mine. And I think that's where we find the balance. The balance between the infinite and the personal God. The balance in our praying. And so I think that God does care about the little things, the human things, the earthy things in our lives. And that's precisely what God wants us to pray about in the everyday, in the mundane, in the specific There's one reason I think, another reason I think we're kind of hesitant to pray this way, and it is because the, the specificity of mundane prayers, it brings God too close. That is, it makes God too personal. That is, it feels like we, we don't like to pray that way because we feel like we're nagging God or that we feel like it's kind of presumptuous, like we have him on a string. And of course, I think it is possible to have the wrong motives in our prayers. It definitely is. But I think sometimes our hindrance to praying these prayers is because it brings him too close. It kind of it makes, it, it makes prayer risky. <laughs> because what if God doesn't answer? Let me, give you, let me read you this illustration. There's a, uh, in the, this book I read, it, uh, it says there's this pastor friend. He was leading a youth group on a, a trip when a loud crack from the bottom of their ancient bus interrupted the drive, a thousand miles from home. Upon further inspection, the problem became clear. The drive shaft had split in two. Now my friend faced a dilemma. Would he gather the teenagers around him and pray for God to fix the bus? What if God didn't provide? How would he explain that to the kids? After all, it wasn't like the problem was a flat tire. The drive shaft was broken. Well, he did lead in prayer. After all, he figured God is fully capable of protecting his own reputation. He doesn't need us to hedge his bets for him. As you can imagine in this happy story, a friendly mechanic appeared who happened to know of a scrapyard nearby that happened to have a spare drive shaft on hand. He towed the bus in, welded the drive shaft in place, and the bus was off and running. God loves to defend his reputation. God is infinite, but he's also personal. God cares about the details. He cares about the nitty-gritty of life. He doesn't expect us to cease being human. 
even as we surrender to God's will. And even if that surrender is painful. And that was true of Jesus. Another question that this brings uh, that, that lots of people struggle with. And that is, what do we do with Jesus' extravagant promises concerning prayer? For example, John 14, 13 and 14. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So, when we read that, Jesus undoubtedly, he's saying this to his disciples on the, the evening before he was crucified. And obviously what he is saying is meant to encourage the disciples. It's meant to strengthen them. It's meant to help them on their way. As anticipating his uh, crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, he's going to be trusting, in, in trusting the establishment of the church to the apostles. He is giving them this promise, as it were, to encourage them. But the problem is, is when we read this promise, we, it doesn't encourage us, it discourages us. Because we say, that's not my experience. That's not reality for me. Well, one way to help us think about this is what James teaches us in James 4, 2, and 3. James says this, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So basically, there are two extremes that we, pro- that we are prone to in our prayer. The first extreme is that we don't pray. Because either we feel distant from God, we say, what will it do? Will he really care? Or worse, unfortunately, is one reason we don't pray is because we don't think we need God. We're self-sufficient. And so we ignore him. So we don't have because we don't ask because we don't pray. The other extreme is this, that we pray, but we pray selfishly. That is with an attitude to manipulate God, to control him, to get our desires for us. But... Consider the balance. So I think a good example of this praying that in, that in which God really shows up is the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the idol. And they knew what that meant. They were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Made Nebuchadnezzar so mad he heated it seven times hotter. It killed the guys throwing him in. And what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? They said, God will save us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to this false god. So what, what, is, what are they doing? Essentially, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were praying. They were saying, they... I don't think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wanted to die. I don't. I don't think they wanted to be burned up in the fire. But there was something they wanted more than not being burned up. And that is they wanted God to be honored in their life. And if that meant dying, then so be it. I don't want to die, but if that's what it takes to honor God with my life, so be it. Bring it. What does God do? Well, there's, they get tossed in the fire, and a fourth man shows up. A man whom Nebuchadnezzar says looks like a son of the gods. 
God shows up, he saves them, he delivers them. I think this echoes Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. God's let this cup pass for me, but nevertheless, there's something I want more. Your name to be honored in my life. And so we do have this radical promise from Christ. And since we have this promise from Christ, what will we pray for? What will we pray for? The Bible, I think, gives us some pointers. In Psalm 1611, one of my favorite verses, the, the psalmist writes, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is that if we will take time to think about it, what we want the most as Christians is more of God. That's what we want. Isn't that what Jesus' prayer was? <laughs> I, God let this cup pass from nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That wasn't a concession. Jesus wasn't conceding. Jesus wasn't saying, oh, well, God, I really want this, but if I have to, I'll do it. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, God, that thought of this really terrifies me, but I want to magnify you more than I want my life. It wasn't a concession. It was an expression of greater desire. And so, when Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, Jesus wasn't teaching us to pray. Uh, he wasn't saying, hey guys, I know you really want to pray for all these other things over here, but I, I really want you to pray for this. It's not what he was saying. He was saying, what you want more than anything, and you don't even know it yet, is you want my kingdom to come in your life. You want my kingdom to come in this world. That's what you really want. In other words, the greatest problem with our prayers to God is not that they're too great for him to answer. They're too weak. They're too small. They're too focused on the transient things instead of the eternal things. We're praying for... We're praying for uh, we're, like C.S. Lewis said, we're like children making mud pies in the slum because we don't know what is meant by a vacation at the beach. So when Jesus is telling us to pray for these things, he's telling us what we really want. And that's what Jesus was praying. This is what I want, not my will, but thine be done. How do we know this? Because the Bible tells us, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What made Jesus endure the cross? Because of the promise of greater future joy. You see, sometimes we can think about Christianity and say, oh, you know, what a drag. What's this talk of self-denial? But Jesus, all the time, all the time, he motivated people with the hope of future joy. He said, store treasure in heaven, not on this earth. Why? Because it'll be waiting on you when you get there. 
Why endure persecution for Christ's sake? Because blessed are you. Leap, jump, shout for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus isn't trying to make your life a drag. He's trying to give you more for your life than you ever imagined for yourself. And that should change the way we pray. So pray. Pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. What a great prayer. What a great prayer. Lord, your kingdom come in my heart. And get rid of this bitter spirit within me because of what so-and-so did to me. God, let your kingdom come in my husband's heart, in my wife's heart, in the heart of my children. Let your kingdom come. Change them. Lord, let your kingdom come in this community where they might know the power and the saving grace of God to be able to transform lives and give eternal joy and hope in this broken world. Our prayers aren't too big, they're too small. We look at the world, we see all the brokenness, all the division, all the strife, and, we, and we're trying to change the world with a Facebook post. Why don't you pray? That person who aggravates the mess out of you on social media, instead of arguing with them, why don't you pray for them? I can guarantee it'll be a lot more effective. Don't you see? God is both transcendent and imminent. He is both infinite and personal. And we know this because 2,000 years ago, the Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word And the word was with God. And the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So our religion, (laughs) our view of the world is different. We can say with not arrogance, but with humble confidence, that Christianity is true, that there's only one way of salvation, that there's only one hope of the world because he has come to us. And he died on the cross paying the penalty for our sins and he rose from the dead giving us the sure hope of everlasting life and whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when you turn from your sin... And embrace Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. You then have un.
unfettered access to God as your father. Therefore, we as Christians pray like no other. So as I close tonight, I extend an invitation. We only come to God as children by faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And so we, we have the opportunity this night to come to him, to believe in him, to turn from ourselves and from our sin and trust in Christ. And if you do that, your life will be changed forever. And so that's the invitation we're gonna, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song of invitation in just a moment. You can respond however.